Good evening and welcome to the Spirit and Life Bible Study. My name is Jonathan. Our reader is Kara tonight. And our topic is <laughs> Leah and Rachel, who are these two wives of Jacob. And so, um, uh, as you may remember, it's a kind of a disturbing story because uh, Jacob falls in love with Rachel, works for seven years to win her hand, and then somehow his father-in-law uh, slips him Leah instead, and he doesn't even realize it till the next morning. And uh, so it's sort of a bait-and-switch story situation. So uh, what is this story about? Why would the Bible take up time with this? Because everything in the Old Testament, as we know from Luke 24, is all about the Lord and His story, and it's also about our story. So what is this in us? What is it to this, this strange bait-and-switch in these two wives of Leah and Rachel, Leah, who's said to be uh, weak-eyed or short-sighted or whatever you might say, and, and Rachel's beautiful, um, what is going on with these two. So if you'd like to join me on that journey, please do, good friends, and let's open with a prayer. Our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, we turn our hearts and minds to you, Lord, praying for your presence among us as we open the pages of your word seeking understanding of this symbolism, Lord, and what it has to teach us. Amen. Amen. Sending love to everybody out there online and on the phone, getting the audio here in the room. So nice to see everyone. Why don't I tell you, I keep forgetting to do this, uh, who we are. We're the Spirit and Life Bible Study. This looks at the Bible through a Swedenborgian lens, meaning in alignment with the teachings of Emanuel Swedenborg, who was born in 1688, died in 1772. And the name Spirit and Life comes from Jesus himself, who says that his words are spirit and they are life, John 6.63. And we take spirit here to mean that his words have a spiritual and heavenly meaning and purpose, and life to mean that his words are alive and aim to bring us to life by teaching us how to live if we wish to become spiritual and heavenly ourselves. And since Jesus, we read, is the Word made flesh, John 1.14, what he says of his words applies to all the words of the Bible, we believe. They all teach who he is and how we are to get from hell to heaven. So, very nice to have you with us, everyone. And... Um, Leah and Rachel, let's read this story. So Genesis, first book of the Bible. We'll go to Genesis chapter 29. And this is a main part of the story of their courtship and so forth and what happened. Um, let's see. Where should we start this? He, he comes to a well. His parents were very concerned that he not make his twin brother Esau's mistake by marrying um, Hittites. You should not marry a Hittite. This is biblical advice. And so Jacob is sent to go get a wife from his own people uh, back in Haran. And so he goes traveling there and comes to a well. And here comes Rachel uh, with her father's sheep. And um, uh, I'd like to pick up at verse 15. So he's met Rachel here, and now Laban, who is Rachel's father, is talking to Jacob. Then Laban said to Jacob, Because you are my relative, should you therefore serve me for nothing? Tell me, what should your wages be? 
Now Laban had two daughters. The name of the elder was Leah, and the name of the younger was Rachel. Okay, this is very important that Leah is older, Rachel is younger, okay? Leah's eyes were delicate, but Rachel was beautiful of form and appearance. Yes, okay. Often works out that way, doesn't it? What is You're firstborn, but you just didn't get the, you know, delicate hit with a beauty stick. What's delicate that? Delicate doesn't sound too bad, though. Yeah, well, it's, yeah. Uh, okay. Swedenborg explains it as meaning that she really couldn't see past the end of her nose. So uh, I'm, I'm paraphrasing somewhat there. Um, <laughs> do go on. Okay, sorry. Um, now, Jacob loved Rachel, so he said, I will serve you seven years for Rachel, your younger daughter. Aha. Uh -huh. He loved her. She was the one that he met by the well. Leah wasn't in the picture. He loves Rachel. And so he says, I'm going to, which is a huge price, to, you know, seven years of your labor. It's amazing sort of the dowry. What would you call that? It, you know, mm. sort of reverse dowry or something. Go on. And Laban said, it is better that I give her to you than that I should give her to another man. Stay with me. Yeah. So Jacob served seven years for Rachel. And, and here's this beautiful statement. And they seemed only a few days to him because of the love he had for her. Yeah, this was a light, a light thing to do this labor of seven years. He's not married to her yet. He's just working away, but it just it goes by like a few days. Okay. Oops. Then, Go on. then Jacob said to Laban, Give me my wife, for my days are fulfilled that I may go into her. And Laban gathered together all the men of the place and made a feast. Now it came to pass in the evening that he took Leah, his daughter, and brought her to Jacob, and he went into her. Okay, without realizing it, as we find out soon. So Leah, wait a minute, you know, he'd worked seven years for Rachel, but then instead the father takes Leah in there, okay? And Laban gave his maid Zilpah to his daughter Leah as a maid. Fascinating little detail that we need to pause the biblical narrative to tell you. And he gave her this, this handmaid, which becomes very meaningful in later stories, although we won't deal with it this evening. Go on. So it came to pass in the morning that, behold, it was Leah. Yeah, see, Jacob didn't realize it. He thought he was with Rachel, and he wasn't. He was with Leah. Wow. Okay. So go on. So is, is he happy about it? And he said to Laban, what is this you have done to me? Was it not for Rachel that I served you? Why then have you deceived me? Mm, you deceived me. That's right. He certainly did. And Laban said, it must not be done so in our country to give the younger before the firstborn. Mm, yeah. So could have mentioned that seven years ago. <laughs> you know, it seems kind of... Or at the wedding, at the very or something, but no, they, you know, so frustrating. Go on. Fulfill her week, and we will give you this one also for the service which you will serve with me still another seven years. Yeah, so this is interesting. I didn't used to realize this, but actually at this point, Jacob only has to wait another week to marry his true love, Rachel, and then he's going to work another seven years after so there's only a week between Leah and Rachel uh, uh, becoming his wives, but he's going to work another seven years for her. But he, at least he didn't have to work another seven years and wait. Mm -hmm. You know, go on. Then Jacob did so and fulfilled her week. 
So he gave him his daughter Rachel as wife also. But wait a minute. What about a handmaid? And Laban gave his maid Bilhah to his daughter Rachel as a maid. Okay, good. At least it's fair. Okay, good. <laughs> then Jacob also went into Rachel, and he also loved Rachel more than Leah. Oh, is that going to make for a happy household? Okay, he loves Rachel more than Leah. Okay. And he served with Laban still another seven years. Now look at this verse 31 here. Interesting little detail. When the Lord saw that Laban was unloved, oops, I said that wrong. When the Lord saw that Leah was unloved. Yes, in the old King James actually hated, it says. Mm -hmm. mm, okay. He opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. Now this is an important point. So Leah starts having children, which is, you know, a, a big thing then as it is now. And, and uh, but Rachel is barren. And as you read on in the story, Leah has Reuben and then Simeon and then Levi and then Judah. She has four kids. Uh, and then at the very end of that verse 35, she stopped having children, right? She stopped bearing. Yes, right. And then chapter 30, verse 1, what happens there? Now, when Rachel saw that she bore Jacob no children, Rachel envied her sister. Okay, we got some feelings on Rachel's side as well, that she envies Leah because Leah's having all these children and Rachel's not. And she said to Jacob, give me children or else I die. Mm. And Jacob's anger was aroused <coughs> against Rachel. And he said, am I in the place of God who has withheld from you the fruit of the womb? And so what she ends up doing is giving the aforementioned uh, maid that we thankfully learned about in the previous chapter uh, to him. And he has children by the maid. And uh, look at, uh, let's pick up in verse 7. And Rachel's maid Bilhah conceived again and bore Jacob a second son. And listen to what Rachel says when that happens. Then Rachel said, With great wrestlings have I wrestled with my sister, and indeed I have prevailed. So she called his name Naphtali. Which is wrestlings of God. And, and so there's some tension between these sisters. Uh, there, there's some tension there. Okay, and then, uh, then Leah in verse 9 ends up giving her maid to Jacob. And he has two children by her. Uh, and then there's a whole discussion about these mandrakes, which were some sort of aphrodisiac or something. And then more children are bo born. And look over in verse 22. Then God remembered Rachel, and God listened to her and opened her womb. Okay, so there have been ten children born by this point, And finally Rachel starts having children. So read on a little bit there. And she conceived and bore a son and said, God has taken away my reproach. So mm. she called his name Joseph and said, The Lord shall add to me another son. Yep, that's right. And then a very great while later, a number of chapters later, then Rachel also has Benjamin, and that completes the 12 of these uh, children, the sons of Israel. And there's also a daughter, Dinah, who's mentioned there in verse 21. Okay, so, okay, we put ourselves in Jacob's shoes. It's hard to work really, really hard 
you know, I mean, they seemed to him just like a couple of days. He was just full of love and everything. But still, the idea of it is sort of like a ripoff that you worked so hard and then you don't even get the person that you were working for and you have to work another seven years. And he ends up getting upset with Laban about this later and says, you've changed my wages so many times and this kind of thing. You know, he's upset with him, with his father-in-law. Um, uh, so that's understandable. And then there's this rivalry between the wives and who's having kids and who isn't and, and whose handmaid is having kids or not and, and all that. Uh, so that's sort of a tension. And it's interesting that Rachel says, Give me children or else I die as if it's Jacob's fault or something, you know. And he says, what, am I God? I, you know, I, I can't control this, this situation. Um, let's put ourselves in Leah's shoes. Not very fun to be Leah in this story, right? Dad's just sort of got to fob you off on some guy, <laughs> you know, who's in love with your little sister. And, and uh, she's not little at this point, but, you know. Uh, so, um, not very fun to be in that situation. She's not particularly loved, but she does have all these children, so it gives her sort of an edge, and Rachel's upset and everything, but the, the whole thing is just not great for, for Leah, and um, I don't know how Rachel feels, but it's not like she has Jacob to herself or anything, you know. It's just a, a kind of a strange situation there, and marrying two sisters, you know, probably not recommended. And um, uh, so what does this Bible story mean if this has something to do with the Lord and something to do with us? Well, my first thought about it uh, is that I think we can relate. I think part of the design of the story is that to some extent, can we not relate to the feeling of the bait and switch a little bit? Like, you may feel like, oh, uh, let's even take the topic of marriage. You may feel like, oh, I'm going to get married and that's going to be really great. But then, I don't know, it's difficult and frustrating and sometimes you feel lonely in your marriage. And, you know, like, wait a minute, I thought I was getting Rachel, but I got Leah instead. You see what I mean? Kind of a situation. You got something that wasn't quite as good somehow. Uh, or you think, oh, this is really great. I'll get you know, I'll, I'll get a whole bunch of money and then oh, actually it's frustrating and you have to keep managing it and other people are jealous of you, what, whatever it is. Or you think, oh, I'll go to this job or I'll have these kids or whatever. Just often, uh, I think we can relate to the kind of a bait and switch feeling that, well, wait a minute, everybody told me this was going to be so great, but actually it's not that great. And the fact that you work and work and work and work and work, even though it's happy, you know, it's happy work, but then you didn't get where you wanted to get and you have to work twice as long to get to the thing that you already thought you were getting. So uh, I think there's a feeling we can relate to in there. And I've thought about that a number of times in connection with this story, but this time for some reason a whole different angle came to my mind about it. And I don't know whether I'll be able to articulate that or not, but you can be sure that I will try. Um, uh, Jacob, you see, Swedenborg explains, means something about the Lord. Uh, and Leah, specifically Jacob, means the Lord's outer self. This is, you know, Abraham was his inner self, this deep part of him, and then Isaac is his rationality. And then Jacob is his outer 
self, particularly the truth uh, or the understanding the mind, his mind. And uh, the symbolism of these two wives, the best way I could summarize it, is that Swedenborg uh, would say uh, that Leah means earthly priorities. She's sort of short-sighted. She's firstborn. Uh, Rachel is more beautiful. She's spiritual priorities. And the tension between these two has to do with the tension in our own lives and even in the Lord's life in this world between earthly and spiritual priorities. Because the fact is, when you're talking about priorities, it, it's hard to sort of have both active at once. Like it always seems to happen that one or the other's having kids, right? They're never having kids at the same time. Uh, either your earthly priorities are working out for you or your spiritual priorities are working out for you, but they don't seem to do it at the same time. And the spiritual priorities seem to give birth, quote-unquote, bear fruit in your life way later than the earthly. It's sort of cash in on the earthly earlier. The spiritual is later. But what started to get me about this was it's such a beautiful love story. Uh, Jacob and Rachel, he loves her so much. It's no problem to work for her. And he even hangs in there and works the extra seven years and everything. And... and um, uh, because he loves her so much and isn't that keen on Leah. Uh, but the different angle that came to me was that I would submit that our lower selves feel the exact opposite. We love Leah. We think Leah's great. We hardly know Rachel exists. We don't care about Rachel in our lower selves. Like where we start out, we love Leah. We don't that much care for Rachel. Uh, so if you accept the idea that Leah means earthly priorities and Rachel means spiritual priorities, we generally start out in our lives caring much more about the things of, well, how is wealth or what school that I go to or, you know, does everybody love me or, you know, what happened? Uh, and we're not thinking much about spiritual priorities. We hardly know they exist. Uh, let's go all the way to the other side of your Bible, if you will, friends. If you go to the uh, four Gospels and then turn, keep going to the right through Acts and Romans, you'll get to 1 Corinthians. I want to go to 1 Corinthians because this is what came to me to talk about with Leah and Rachel. Uh, see how this plays in your mind. Uh, let's go 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Oh, let's do verses 13 to 16. These things we also speak, not in words which man's wisdom teaches, i.e. Leah, but which the Holy Spirit teaches. Rachel. Comparing spiritual things with spiritual. Okay, comparing Rachel things with Rachel things. But how does the natural man feel? But the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, nor can he know them because they are spiritually, because they are spiritually discerned. Yeah, that's a very potent statement. That's just amazing to me. Amazing to me. By the way, I think this is where Swedenborg gets all his language about the natural man. 
Uh, this passage speaks about the natural man, the natural man, the natural level of us, and people who are entirely earthly in their mindset. Uh, that that natural level does not receive is not receptive to the things of God. They're foolishness to him. You see what I mean when I layer this on the story. I think the way we are often, we just think Rachel's out of her mind. Like we don't care about about what Rachel says. It's just foolishness to us. And in fact, we cannot know them because they're spiritually discerned. Like like you can't even see Rachel. Because uh, you need to be in a spiritual state to even be able to see that there's any value in there. It's really interesting. It's so upside down from this story. Let's go on. But he who is spiritual judges all things, Mm. yet he himself is rightly judged by no one. For who has known the mind of the Lord that he may instruct him? Mm. But we have the mind of Christ. The mind of Christ. So this wisdom from above, this spiritual thing, I think is talking about a Rachel situation and that there's a Leah uh, part. And when we're focused on that Leah part, we don't even know about that Rachel part. We, we, we don't understand it. Um, uh, I want to take you back to the left, to the Gospel of John, chapter 2. I can find it here. I didn't even bother writing down a reference. But... Um, uh, this is the famous wedding in Cana of Galilee. And you may know this story where Jesus has them, you know, they run out of wine at this feast. And uh, Jesus takes these water pots and turns them into wine and takes them to the ruler of the feast. And let's pick up at verse 9 there. When the master of the feast had tasted the water that was made wine, and did not know where it came from, but the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom. And he said to him, Every man at the beginning sets out the good wine. And when the guests have well drunk, then the inferior. You have kept the good wine until now. Yes, this was very, very surprising. And uh, first of all, it's interesting that this is a, a wedding that's being described. And also that uh, generally the way it goes, which I would say, I'm not trying to beat up on Leah, I'm just using these two names as sort of standing for something. But if you have earthly priorities, the good wine just does come first. If, like, if what, what you're interested in is just physical good looks or something like that, just, it just comes first. Uh, you know, those earthly things tend to kind of fade away over time. But the Lord's way is to save the good wine till later, which I think is Rachel. Like she doesn't even have kids until 10 other children are born, you know. But that best wine comes at the end. You know what I mean? So I'm sort of painting even more impressionistically than usual tonight. But um, I was thinking about that because of the, that sense of the delay that the Lord, our mindset would be the mindset. Wouldn't, it, wouldn't an earthly priority be to serve the good wine while people still have taste buds, you know, and discernment, and then just go ahead and throw them the bad stuff after they're a little loopy and everything. But, uh, but the, the way that the Lord does it is to have, he's in the long game, and it's interesting that he does this in connection with marriage, you know, long-term relationship, and that, uh, that the way the Lord wants to do it is to 
have the best, like it gets better and better. It's not a quick thing. It's like, it's, it's fun now, oh, and then it sort of deteriorates. Uh, the Lord's going for that long thing, but we don't usually have those priorities. Some other passages I wanted to show you in this regard. Let's go to all the way back to Exodus, which is just after Genesis. Exodus chapter 16. Because it just, I was thinking about, wait a minute, do we love Rachel? Do we love Rachel? Spiritual pride, do we love that? Is, is that us? Is, our lower selves, we don't by nature love Rachel, I don't think. Uh, Exodus 16, verses 12 to 15, about the manna. Let's, be, let's pick up at verse 11 there. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, I have heard the complaints of the children of Israel. The children of Israel had left Egypt and all this wonderful food that they used to have. Now they're wandering in the wilderness and they're complaining bitterly about it. Speak to them, saying, At twilight you shall eat meat, and, uh -huh. and in the morning you shall be filled with bread, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God. Well, listen to that. Can you see, friends, that that meat that you're going to eat in the evening, that, like that's Leah. Doesn't Jacob marry Leah at night? Like it's so dark he can't, doesn't even know who she is, right? Uh, uh, the, the, like that meat is going to come at night and then the bread, which is more like Rachel, is going to come in the morning. Okay, and go on. What happens in the evening? So it was that the quails came up at evening and covered the camp. And in the morning, the dew lay all around the camp. And Swedenborg likens this. The quails are like these earthly delights, fleshly delights uh, that come up in the evening. In our evening states, we have these states where those earthly pleasures are active. But then in the morning, there are these spiritual pleasures that are meant by this manna. And how do people react to that sort of Rachel stuff, the bread in the morning? Go on. When the layer of dew lifted, there on the surface of the wilderness was a small round substance, as fine as frost on the ground. Mm. So when the children of Israel saw it, they said to one another, what is it? What is it? They don't even recognize Rachel, right? They know, they know what a quail is. They know what to do with a quail. But this spiritual bread from heaven in the morning, I don't, what is that? I don't know what that is. Can you eat that? What, what is it? Go on. <laughs> For they did not know what it was. They didn't know what it was. So they asked, what is it? And as you may know, the Hebrew word manna, manna is a Hebrew word, means what is it? They called it, what is it? They don't know what it is. They don't know who Rachel is. They're not in love with Rachel. They're not looking for Rachel. They're interested in the quail. Like, that was good last night. The quail, that was good. This bread, I don't know what this bread is. Right? Mm -hmm. Go on. Moses has to tell them. And Moses said to them, This is the bread which the Lord has given you to eat. Yeah, that's right. And so, uh, yeah, you've got to sit them down and explain it to them. This is something spiritual. You might grow to like it over time. Doesn't look like much right now. Doesn't have wings and meat on it, but, you know, uh, you, you might develop a taste for it eventually. Um, <laughs> you know, we don't start out loving Rachel, I, I don't think. Um, oh, here's another example. Uh, okay. Let's see. All right, let's go to 1 Samuel. So turn to the right. We'll go through Numbers and Deuteronomy and Joshua Judges. Get to 1 Samuel. I want to go to... Chapter 18, 
a lot of the stories in Scripture are really about similar things. And later in the story of the Bible, uh, there's this king. The first king of the Israelites is named Saul. And he's okay at the beginning. Then he kind of loses his mind, unfortunately, and gets paranoid and everything. And then David is coming up, who becomes the king to replace him. And Swedenborg says that David represents the Lord. Uh, Saul is more like ourselves or something. And the very fact that Saul is sort of good at the beginning and then sort of wears out is kind of like the wine. It's good at the beginning of the feast, but then, then the inferior comes later. You know, that's certainly what happened to Saul. But David kind of is a long, slow trajectory, and he, he gets more and more powerful over time. He has a few little hiccups along the way, as we know from Scripture, but uh, we won't focus on those this evening. Uh, 1 Samuel 18, look at verses 10 and 11. How does Saul and David interact here? And it happened on the next day that the distressing spirit from God came upon Saul, mm. and he prophesied inside the house. So David played music with his hand as at other times, but there was a spear in Saul's hand. Yes, and uh, they had actually asked David to come in and play for Saul because the music would soothe him and help him with his you know, emotional disturbance. Uh, but Saul has a spear in hand. And Saul cast the spear, for he said, I will pin David to the wall. But David escaped his presence twice. That is how earthly priorities treat spiritual priorities. Like, they feel threatened by it. Saul, Saul, you know, it's not like, oh, I love David. I can't wait. I work another seven years. No. It's, uh, you know, he's an enemy. He's a threat to that earthly self. There are a number of passages in Scripture that talk about how the flesh and the spirit are against one another, or they start out this way. They're in a kind of a battle, you know, just as the sisters are in a battle, the earthly priorities and the spiritual priorities. And that's, you know, this, this great love for Rachel. You're not seeing it in this story. It's like, you know, try to pin him to the wall a couple of times, but David's able to escape. Uh, oh, let's go to the right, and we'll go to uh, the Psalms in the middle of your book. Go to Psalm 118. It's interesting in that word distress because we talked about distress last time, did we not? Very interesting. Psalm 118, uh, 22 is a rather famous uh, sort of verse here. The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. Yes. The way we start out, we reject, the builders reject that stone. Almost any stone is more interesting. You know, Leah's more interesting. The, rate, the spiritual stone, which represents the Lord, uh, they, they reject, like, you can't build with that. What are you going to build with that? You know, it's not the right size, not the right shape. Uh, but that becomes the head of the corner, this kind of, I don't know what you call it, but sort of a foundation stone that, that's holding up the whole structure. The, the stone which the builder rejected, we... We don't love Rachel. We love Leah. We reject Rachel. Uh, but uh, over time, uh, Rachel becomes important. Uh, so you'll see where I'm going with this eventually, good friends. Uh, let's go to the right through Isaiah to Jeremiah. Jeremiah chapter 32. 
Jeremiah also corresponds to the Lord, you know, something spiritual, a message of truth. Uh, because these, uh, Rachel and Leah also correspond to this love of truth, like Jacob means this truth in the Lord, and Leah and Rachel both mean different ways of loving that truth. But Leah loves it in a kind of external way, and Rachel loves it in an internal way. And Jacob loves Rachel's way, you know, the internal way. Uh, look at Jeremiah 32, verses 2 and 3. How do, they love, uh, how do they love Jeremiah here? For then the king of Babylon's army besieged Jerusalem. And Jeremiah the prophet was shut up in the court of the prison, which was in the king of Judah's house. For Zedekiah, the king of Judah, had shut him up, saying, Why do you prophesy and say, Thus says the Lord? Behold, I will give this city into the hand of the king of Babylon, and he shall take it. Okay, so Zedekiah, the king of Judah, has no great love for the truth. He's not, oh, Jeremiah, that's such wonderful spiritual wisdom you're giving us there. No, I wonder if this is where the expression shut up came from, because he <laughs> shuts him up, right? I mean, he just, just stop him from speaking, stick him in the prison. You know, that, that's how they treat it. Do we really love, in our lower selves, do we really love Rachel? We, we don't. We like, we like Leah better. Um, oh, look at this in the New Testament. All right. All right. Shall we do this? Oh, no. Let's go back to Genesis briefly while we're here. Let's go back to Genesis 39. Uh, see... There's a Leah, like earthly priorities have one view and spiritual priorities do things that are very unusual from an earthly priority standpoint. Here's a situation in Genesis 39 uh, where um, Joseph has been taken captive uh, uh, and he's brought down to Egypt and he works in Potiphar's house. And now Potiphar's wife gets very interested in Joseph. Now Joseph reacts in a spiritual way, which is not the same. This is Joseph. Joseph is sort of reacting in a Rachel kind of way, if you follow what I mean. Not a Leah way to react to the situation. Let's look at verses 6 to 12 here. Thus he left all that he had in Joseph's hand. That's Potiphar, yep. And he did not know what he had except for the bread which he ate. Now Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. Yes. And it came to pass after these things that his master's wife cast longing eyes on Joseph. And she said, lie with me. Okay, let's hit pause there. From a totally earthly perspective, like isn't this kind of a dream come true? Oh, she thinks I'm cute, you know? Like this, this is great. But how does he react? But he refused and said to his master's wife, look, my master does not know what is with me in the house and he has committed all that he has to my hand yeah in other words he totally trusts me you know now this is not an earthly way to handle this situation this is, this is a rachel this is a spiritual way to handle it go on there is no one greater in this house than i nor has he kept back anything from me but you because you are his wife and listen to this how then can i do this great wickedness and sin against god yeah, now that's a spiritual approach to that situation. 
and earthly priorities would have a different thing in mind. Like, oh, this sounds like fun, you know, but no, he's having none of it. Go on. So it was, as she spoke to Joseph day by day, that he did not heed her to lie with her or to be with her. Mm. But it happened about this time when Joseph went into the house to do his work and none of the men of the house was inside. I see. That she caught him by his garment, saying, lie with me. But he left his garment in her hand and fled and ran outside. Yeah, even when she grabbed hold, he, he just takes off. You know, he just takes off. He's, he's having none of it. That is not where our lower self begins. That Joseph, very interesting that he is Rachel's son. He's the one we just read about. He's behaving in that spiritual way. Of, Are you kidding me? I'm not going to wrong my master in this way. He's not letting that lust of the flesh determine his behavior. He's going for something higher and sticks to it. And uh, Potiphar believes the wife and he gets thrown, Joseph gets thrown in prison for this, uh, but he, he did no wrong in that story. So that's an example of how, of a spiritual way of behavior, which is not where our lower selves sort of start out. That's a kind of an eventual thing that, that we would develop, that we would have that strength like that. Um, okay, let's see, what else do we have here? Oh, let's go to... Um, uh, Daniel. So if you go back to the middle of the Bible, go through Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, you'll get to Daniel. I want Daniel chapter 6. And um, Daniel is a member, he's a foreigner living, he's an Israelite, but he's living abroad and he's become part of the government. He's so trusted, uh, but there's a plot against him to kill him, the entire rest of the government is arrayed against him, and they have a whole plan that if he worships, they're going to be able to put him to death because the only purchase they can get on him is because he's such a religious, spiritual person. So, like Joseph, this is an example of a spiritual reaction. It's a Rachel reaction. This is nothing like a normal Leah kind of reaction. Look at verse 10 there. This is the, about the decree that they were signing that was specifically aimed at at getting Daniel thrown in the den of lions. Now when Daniel knew that the writing was signed, he went home, and in his upper room, with his windows open toward Jerusalem, he knelt down on his knees three times that day, and prayed and gave thanks before <coughs> his God, as was his custom since early days. That's right. He has a habit of praying. This is a Rachel perspective. This is a spiritual perspective. It is not normal behavior when the entire government is arrayed against you and wishes to kill you to go home and thank God. Have a nice little prayer and then at lunch have another one. You know, not normal behavior. This is not an earthly priority. This is a spiritual priority. Something is more important to him than his earthly life, uh, even his physical life. You know, like something is more important to him. You don't start out there. You, that, that develops over a long time, you know, to get to that point where he's so solid in his spiritual life that when the whole purpose of this thing was to stop him from worshiping, he went ahead and worshiped. And he thanked the Lord. Uh, you know, it's amazing. It's not sort of your normal place that you start out in life. All right, let's look at the New Testament. Let's just skip a bit to the right there, go into Matthew. 
Let's look at Matthew 2.16. I want to show you some a couple examples of just a quote-unquote Leah, like an earthly priority way to react to a situation, and then a very contrasting spiritual way to react to a situation. We saw how threatened Saul was by David. Totally threatened. Wants to pin him to the wall. Worried about him, you know. Not soothed by the beautiful music. He's like, no, I want to, I want to kill him. And uh, Herod was very threatened by the Lord. What does Herod do? He hears this prophecy that this child is going to be born. He says to the wise men, oh, I want to come and worship him too. Does he want to worship him? No. And when they don't come back and tell him, what does he do in verse 16? Then Herod, when he saw that he was deceived by the wise men, was exceedingly angry. And he sent forth and put to death all the male children who were in Bethlehem and in all its districts, from two years old and under, according to the time which he had determined from the wise men. That's the way your lower self reacts to a threat. Kill everybody, you know, <laughs> like it's insanity. But that's the earthly priority way to react to, oh, there's a power greater than I am. I'm going to lose my throne kill everybody in sight, try, you know, try to get rid, just do extreme, insane, horrible, murderous measures to try to deal with that threat. That is an earthly priority way of approaching things. Flip over to the right to the Gospel of John, a couple of Gospels later, go to chapter 3, verses 25 to 30. Here's another person who saw Jesus as a power greater than himself, but had a different reaction. Let's start in verse 25 there and go down to 30. This is John the Baptist. Then there arose a dispute. Am I in the right place? That's right. Between some of John's disciples and the Jews about purification. Uh -huh. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you beyond the Jordan, to whom you have testified. Meaning Jesus. Behold, he is baptizing and all are coming to him. Yes. Now, if Herod had heard this, kill them all, right? He, he's a threat. You kidding? Someone else is coming. More people are going to him than to me. The ego says, kill them all. I mean, it's an intolerable situation to have that kind of competition. But how does John react to this? John answered and said, a man can receive nothing unless it has been given to him from heaven. That is a Rachel reaction. Go on. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ but I have been sent before him. He who has the bride is the bridegroom, but the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is fulfilled. Mm. Go on. He must increase, but I must decrease. That is a spiritual way of responding to someone who's better than you are. That's not where our lower self starts out. We don't start out there saying, oh, I'm just happy to hear his voice. You know, that's amazing. I'm just rejoicing. My joy is full. How does Herod feel? Horrible. And he's also, as you see in the whole thing, he's paranoid. He's worried when he kills John the Baptist. He's worried he's come back to life or something. He's just, he's a mess. You know, how does John the Baptist feel? Just overflowing with joy. 
this is Leah, like earthly priorities, where does that get you? Competition, dog eat dog, you know, versus Rachel is like a spiritual perspective of like, oh, I'm just happy I was there to get to see it. He must increase, I must decrease. The lower self does, doesn't say those, doesn't know those words, you know. <laughs> and yet that's what has to happen to our lower self. You know, our lower self needs to get in the John the Baptist position, not the Herod position. Um, okay, here's another example. Let's go to back to Matthew. Matthew chapter 4. Okay, Jesus is tempted by a devil. And here's one little part of it. In 4 verse 8. Again, the devil took him up on an exceedingly high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. Even more exciting than Potiphar's wife throwing herself at you to be offered all the kingdoms of the world. This is what we dream about. Our dream come true, you know? How is the Lord going to react? And he said to him, all these things I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Says that devil, that's right. And what does the Lord say to him? And Jesus said to him, away with you, Satan. For it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only you shall serve. That's right. So the devil in this position uh, wants Jesus' worship, is offering him the whole world, which he probably can't offer. You know, he can't actually make good on it. But he's saying, I'll give you the whole world. You just fall down and worship me. Uh, that's the kind of ego position, like the ideal situation would to be, be worshipped by the Lord. How great would you be if you were worshipped by Jesus, you know? And contrast that. Look at the very right of your Bible in Revelation, back of the book there. I want to go to Revelation 19. That was a devil. This is an angel. 19 verse 10. So this angel has been speaking to John on the Isle of Patmos and uh, John bows down to the angel in verse 10 there. And I fell at his feet to worship him. And what does he say? Oh, finally, this is what I've been dreaming of. Someone to worship me. What does he say? But he said to me, see that you do not do that. I am your fellow servant and of your brethren who have the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. That is a Rachel way to respond. And you don't get there overnight, you know, like, oh, this is great. I'm being worshipped. Fabulous. You know, no, the angel will have none of it any more than Joseph would have Potiphar's wife. No, no. I'm the same as you are. Do not bow down to me. Direct your worship to God because that'll be much, much better. That, that'll make everybody happier. It's a much better situation. Okay, so I'm just trying to contrast these, these sorts of things. Here's a couple of other things. Um, uh, let's go back to the left of the Gospel of Luke, if you will. Luke chapter 6. Mm. Yeah, Luke 6. Um, let's read 22 and 23. The Lord is trying to teach people to love Rachel because they don't. We don't. We love Leah. Blessed are you when men hate, hate you, sorry, and when they exclude you 
and revile you and cast out your name as evil for the son of man's sake. That's good. That's a good situation. Go on. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy. Possibly the most difficult command of the Lord is to obey. But when you're persecuted and excluded and everything, jump up and down and hallelujah, you know. Uh, amazing. Go on. For indeed your reward is great in heaven. For in like manner their fathers did to the prophets. That's right. Uh, and let's read verse 24. But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Look at verse 26 down there. Woe to you when all men speak well of you, for so did their fathers to the false prophets. But that's the thing I want the most. Everybody to speak well of me. What do you mean? That's bad. So it's bad? See, this is spiritual teaching. It's not naturally discerned. Like the natural self knows nothing about this. It's foolishness. It's ridiculous. What are you talking about? Rejoice and leap for joy when you're persecuted and harassed. D think, uh-oh, when everybody says nice things about you, you must be doing something wrong, <laughs> you know? Uh, it's upside-down teaching. We don't start out loving Rachel. Uh, we don't start out in that situation. Okay, a couple more like this. Luke 14. That's a few more. So fun. Mm -hmm. Uh 7 to 11. Let's just read that. So he told a parable to those who were invited. When he noted how close... Oh, sorry. When he noted how they chose the best places. Okay, so there's a feast. And some people are sort of pushing and shoving to get to the nice spot at the head table. And, you know, little elbow here, and a little hip check here. And, yeah, <laughs> go on. Saying to them, when you are invited by anyone to a wedding feast... Do not sit down in the best place. Ouch. Lest one more honorable than you be invited by him. But surely there's no one more honorable than I. <laughs> and he who invited you and him come and say to you, Give place to this man. And then you begin with shame to take the lowest place. Because all the other people have filled in. So you're going to be in the back all, all the way in the cheap seats by the kitchen. That's right. <laughs> go on. <laughs> <laughs> but when you are invited, go and sit down in the lowest place. Mm. So that when he who invited you comes, he may say to you, friend, go up higher. Then you will have glory in the presence of those who sit at the table with you. Mm. For whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Then he Leah's, we can stop there. Okay. Leah, Leah's, what Leah corresponds to there, the earthly priorities, is get the best seat, you know what I mean, push to the front of the line. And the Lord is saying, in several ways, both in an earthly way and in a spiritual way, um, not the best strategy, you know, because pro you'll probably be humbled and then you'll have to sit all the way at, at the bottom. Uh, just go, go sit down at the most humble table and then if you get invited up, it's great. Then you're just happy. It's all good. Like John the Baptist said, my joy is fulfilled. I mean, I'm already, it's, it's amazing. and I'm happy to just sort of wind back while the Lord takes over here. Uh, this is spiritual teaching, and the natural man doesn't understand what that is about. Um, oh, Luke 22. 
verses 24 to 27. There's a little argument. You know these things very well, good friends. Now there was also a dispute among them as to which of them should be considered the greatest. And he said to them, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those who exercise authority over them are called benefactors. So that's the earthly way. The earthly priorities would be to be the top dog, the big cheese, you know, to be at the top of the pile and, and rule over other people. Tell them what to do, boss them around. That, that would be the way. But what does the Lord teach his disciples? But not so among you. On the contrary, he who is greatest among you, let him be as the younger. The younger? Was there like an older sister? And then there was a younger one? Okay. And he who governs as he who serves. For who is greater, he who sits at the table or he who serves? Mm, definitely the one who sits at the table, clearly. It is not he who sits at the table. Oh, is it not he who sits at the table? That's right. Yet I am among you as the one who serves. Yes. The Lord is doing that counterintuitive. Wait a minute. What are you doing? And when he washes the disciples' feet, like, that's the most menial. Nobody wants that job. Please let me do something, you know. Can I work in the kitchen? No, you're doing the feet. Again. Um, <laughs> and yet that's the job the Lord took. It's, not, it's spiritual wisdom. It's foolishness to the natural man. Um, okay, just, uh, I don't know, two more. Let's go to the right. Go back through Acts and Romans to, this time to 2 Corinthians. Let's try 2 Corinthians. Let's go to chapter 12. This is Paul's attitude. This is not a Leah-type attitude. I'm not blaming Leah, just saying what she means correspondentially. Go on. At the beginning... Uh, 2 Corinthians 12, verse 10. Verse 10. Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities, in reproaches, in needs, in persecutions, in distresses for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Foolishness to the natural man. It makes no sense. What are you talking about? Pleasure in persecution in need, in being reproached. What are you talking about? It's foolishness to the natural man. But that's that sort of Rachel wisdom. And finally, let's turn to the right. Uh, go to Hebrews. Keep going to the right till you hit the Hebrews. And right after Hebrews is James. And a wonderful verse there. Chapter 1, verse 2. My brethren... Count it all joy when you fall into various trials. Yes, various <laughs> trials are in the Old King James, diverse temptations. Count it all joy. Leah, the earthly priorities, what are you talking about? It's insanity. If, like, you can't be happy about that. What are you talking about? So, what I am trying to convey, good friends, is that... This is not how our lower selves feel. We may be able to read ourselves into the story and feel like, yeah, I wanted this, but I got that. It was sort of a bait and a switch. But actually, there's another layer to this story, I believe. Not that that's wrong or, or whatever, but I think there's another whole layer to it 
which is this, my friends. Jacob means something about the Lord's outer self. And I think actually there's a way of reading the story, which is that only the Lord loves Rachel. Only the Lord thinks Rachel is valuable. Only the Lord can see her. We all are chasing Leah, you know, with those earthly priorities, like with our lower selves. It's like, you've got to get the money, and I want to build somebody wrong me. I'm going to beat them down, and, you know, whatever it is, just like all that earthly priorities. That's what we know. We love Leah. What is amazing, and part of what is contained in this story, I believe, is what's astonishing is that the Lord loved Rachel from the beginning. Rachel was the one he loved. Rachel was the one he wanted. He wanted her even if she was going to be barren through 10 children by other, other people or whatever. Doesn't matter. We're playing a long game here. You know? That's fine. When Joseph comes, he's going to be amazing. I can wait. I can wait for that because that's a spiritual thing. The Lord loves Rachel. Our lower selves, we don't. They're foolishness to us. Those, those, Leah, those Rachel priorities are like crazy. You know, who would do that? And so we want... It, it, okay, one thing I want to say is that it, there's a necessary order to it. You, Leah is the firstborn. You can't, you can't get to Rachel. Rachel's not older than Leah. It, you just, it's the order of the thing. Of course we go through building our earthly lives first. Of course, you just have to. There are all these figures in the Bible where the younger son ends up inheriting or becoming the great thing. And here it's the younger daughter is more loved and favored, more beautiful and so on. Um, uh, because the younger always means the spiritual. Your earthly life develops first and gets on its feet and it's going, you know. The spiritual just comes creeping in later. It's quite a bit younger. But the spiritual is really uh, what it's all about. Um, we need the Lord to tell us how to love Rachel. Like, uh, let's pick the example of marriage. You know, I wouldn't wade in and try to tell you what, what people are thinking or feeling. But I think when, when young people go down the aisle, I don't know what they're thinking, but I don't think they necessarily know you know, how difficult a journey that can be or what it's going to be like to take care of someone when they're sick or they're even in a coma or, or maybe for decades or what, you know, like that's not what you were thinking. You know what I mean? But that's the better thing. The compassion. You know what I mean? The natural man doesn't understand it, but the Lord knows, no, Rachel is more beautiful. Leah's really short-sighted. Those earthly priorities are just for like, oh, the next few years or something like that. No, something much better. You've saved the best wine for last. Because when we learn that humility, compassion, what John the Baptist reflects there of saying, I'm just happy to hear his voice. I just want to get out of the way and let the Lord do his thing. You know, I just felt privileged to be part of it as opposed to the Herod, sort of kill them all. I can't take this competition, you know. Got to go way overboard to get rid of this threat. Uh, we start out with our earthly selves in that position. The Lord is trying to teach us. I think even in this story, he's trying to teach us 
No, I'm telling you, you think Rachel is nothing. But I'm telling you, she's more beautiful than Leah. She's worth waiting for. She's worth working for. That spiritual perspective. Um, it's so upside down to our lower selves. We don't, like, what do you mean you're giving up that job because you thought someone else would do it better? It makes no sense. Or, or, or you know, what do you mean, like, commit to somebody and, you know, like we, don't, we don't understand it. But the Lord, and so often you think, well, I want this job because I think it'll give me enough money. I can get that car that I want and, uh, you know, and then I'll be able to, you know, go on more dates or whatever because I have more money and I have a cool car or something like that. And you get into the work. So you marry Leah, right? And you think it's going to be all about Leah. But what the Lord has in mind is Rachel. And Rachel is where actually as you do that job, you start to realize, actually, I care about these people I'm serving here. I want them to do well. I know I could go out tonight, but if I stay late, maybe I can make a few more calls and help some more people because people are in a desperate situation right now. You know, the Lord is doing. Only the Lord knows that Rachel's worth having, you know? Uh, we think Leah's so great and Rachel's nothing. The Lord knows, oh no, this will be much happier for you. Who's happier, Herod or John the Baptist? John the Baptist is overflowing with joy. That's the position where the ego is small, even where you get to the point. Who, who, is, who is happier? Somebody who's fighting back with flame and fire or Daniel who just prays, opens his windows to the east and just thanks the Lord. Just praying to the Lord and just thanking the Lord. You know, um, it's not a natural place. We don't naturally love Rachel, but the Lord wants to show us. Let me show you how great Rachel is. You know, maybe eventually you'll, something will be born, something of Joseph, something of Benjamin, something really, really great. It'll take a long time to get there, uh, but the Lord is patient and wants to develop that thing. So it, it struck me. It's really the Lord who loves Rachel. I think that's what this story is about. The Lord loves Rachel. Wants us to see, wants us to empathize with the story and to see what that feels like to love Rachel. But actually, so much of the rest of Scripture is showing us that in and of ourselves, from our lower selves, we don't actually care about Rachel. We don't know who, who she is. We don't care that much. But the Lord would like to bring us into that Love And really, the story is ultimately about these sisters uh, coming together and getting along. When you can get it into a situation where your spiritual priorities are top, and then beneath that, there's also that earthly level, then you, things are really going in a good direction. There's tension between the two for a long time, but uh, they, can, they can reconcile and come together and do really good things. Um, so, in conclusion, I think Leah means earthly priorities, Rachel means spiritual priorities, and Jacob loved Rachel more, but we start out preferring what is meant by Leah. We need the Lord to teach us how lovable Rachel is. Thank you, good friends. Let's close with a prayer.
our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, you are the one God of heaven and earth, possessing all power in heaven and all power on earth. We thank you, Lord, for the mysteries and the depth of your word. We thank you for opening this up to us, giving us a little glimpse of who you are, what you care about, and offering us that astonishing transformation where we could go from being people who just have those earthly priorities, the dog-eat-dog -dog world, and bringing us into a state of compassion and humility, uh, something for the long haul, something so beautiful, something that you can truly be married to in us. Our Father, who art in the heavens, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done as in heaven, so upon the earth. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we also forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever. Amen. Let's keep on repenting, friends, so we learn to love Rachel.